It was a huge journey just to get it off the ground in terms of all the complications that we ran into. And we launched the website and, and it didn't work. But that failure led us to the idea of putting on mobile devices in a, right at the moment in time when Apple and Steve Jobs were announcing it was going to be possible to develop apps for the iPhone and we're going to create something called the App Store. So we, we quickly tried to uh, build a Bible app and it was in the first 200 apps the day that the App Store launched back in 2008. My name is Bobby Grunwald and I'm the founder and CEO at Uversion. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today help Bobby Greenwald created one of the first apps in the App Store to help you read the Bible daily. All this and more on Code Story. Bobby Greenwald is a lifelong learner and an activator. He majored in finance, but was always interested in entrepreneurship. In 1995, he built a website for a car dealership for $100 and then went on to build HondaParts.com. The dealer he worked for committed to investing in his future projects right then and there. Post that, he built several companies and sold them, creating a successful entrepreneurial track record. He's been married for 26 years and has four children. His 16-year-old just started driving, but he claims she's a great driver, way better than the self-driving mode on his Tesla. As a hobby, or addiction as he confesses, he's a pilot, but didn't just stop with his pilot's license. He could fly helicopters, seaplanes, jets, and over the past few years, he's flown 44 different types of planes. He finds that it's very therapeutic to be up in the air, and a great way to clear his head of all the things that occupy his thoughts. In the past, in spite of being on staff at a church, Bobby found himself not reading the Bible regularly. While standing in the security line in the airport, he thought up an idea to use technology to help him read the Bible more and grow spiritually. This is the creation story of the Uversion Bible app. Uversion is a I would say it's a Bible app, but it's really more of a platform that really helps people grow spiritually. And it started out as really a simple question that I had back in 2006, which is, I wonder if there's a way to use technology to help me read the Bible more consistently. At that point in time, through a series of events, I, I was actually on staff at a church and still am as a pastor at a church, so not, not the typical entrepreneurial path. <laughs> But um, in spite of being on staff at a church and a pastor, I found myself not consistently reading the Bible the way that I wanted to. You know, the Bible's a fairly big book. It's not something you typically would carry with you everywhere. We obviously see the Bible as a source of truth, as the source of truth, you know, and, and something that is important for us to have in our lives. So that spurred this idea. It was actually in a TSA security line in an airport where I was having this question and the idea came. In that security line, uh, I had this idea for what was a website at the time, because it was 2006, so that was that predated app stores and, and apps the way that we know it today. And the website was kind of a, a novel idea, um, basically allows people to take any type of media and associate it with any portions of, of the Bible. 
whether it's a YouTube video or at that time a Flickr photo or, you know, whatever the, the, the media format was. And so that was the idea and I'm an activator. So I thought of what I thought was the best name at the time at there at the airport that day. And I registered the domain name uversion.com before I got on the airplane. Tell me about the MVP. So either the, the first product that didn't work or the first version of the app. I'll let you decide or tell me about both. But tell me about the, the first version of the product you built. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? It was a huge journey just to get it off the ground in terms of all the complications that we ran into. And we launched the website and, and it didn't work. Um, but that failure led us to the idea of putting on mobile devices and right at the moment in time when Apple and Steve Jobs were announcing it was going to be possible to develop apps for the iPhone and they're going to create something called the App Store. So we, we quickly tried to uh, build a Bible app um, and submit it to Apple. I think we had like three months to do it and it was in the first 200 apps the day that the App Store launched back in 2008. So it was in the very first group of apps on as a Thursday in July. So today it's obviously much more than that, but that's where it started. It was really a simple app to begin with and it's obviously grown over time to what it is today. What we realized, and I didn't know this at the time, I was very, very ignorant, but in order for us to build this initial concept, we were going to have to have a license to the Bible text. I presume that the Bible was free. I don't know. I just thought, well, the thing's been written you know, for thousands of years. Surely it's free. The Bible translations, I've, it wasn't written in English. And so someone spent millions of dollars in time carefully translating it from original languages into English. And the modern English versions of it are all owned by you know different groups. Some are not-for-profit, some are for-profit, and there's multiple versions. I mean, most people may not realize it, but in English, I think we have, today we have like 60 versions, you know, available in English. So the first obstacle that we encountered had nothing to do with technology. It had everything to do with licensing and rights. And it was a showstopper, right? If we couldn't get the license to the Bible text, the, the idea wouldn't would be worthless. It wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to execute it at all. So, I mean, I went around and I knew nobody in the industry. I had no relationships and just sort of doors began to open, met somebody who was kind of a key to introducing us to the CEOs of a lot of these publishing companies. Got in to get meetings just out of the, the relationship, that the connection that I had. The meetings really went nowhere for most all of them. I didn't have the conversation and I understand why. I mean, we're, I, we wanted this to be a free website and a free tool. We were going to be donation-based and not, not monetize it. So I'm asking people to give us their IP for free so I can give it away for free. I mean, it's really not a compelling argument. But because a lot of these groups are Christian organizations, you wouldn't get no's, you would just get no response. That's what you get. It's like the Christian version of no. Um, I don't want to tell you you can't do it. I just want to like not like tell you you can't. But we did get one that said yes. And to this day, I don't even really fully know why um, they said yes. But it just took one to get started. And so that was the, the big hurdle. The second piece is we just had to build a website, you know, and, and we didn't at the time have resources to do it. So it was kind of beg, borrow, steal a little bit, you know, where we're just giving a vision to people and see if we get people excited about it to contribute time, you know, to doing it. We had a little bit of money we could use for contractors to kind of help. And we had, I think, a guy doing some of the front end development from India. We had a designer that was in Atlanta. 
And then I remember in my in my house, I had a theater room, and I took these the big, huge wall-sized post-it note things, and we had kind of mapped out a roadmap. And there was, I mean, it was a lot of ideas, ideas that we still haven't even fully executed on today. You know, this many years later. But then we had to kind of distill it down into that MVP, like you were talking about, which. At the very beginning, it was very, very simple. It was a Bible reader on a website that did allow you to select verses and it allowed you to associate some media types, but there were very few you know you could do initially with it. And it had an account system and a login because obviously you keep track of all that, all the data and the associations, and so the person could come back and, and see everything that they'd linked. We had some novel ideas about how we visualized it and all of that, and, and we were able to get most of that into the MVP. But it was very, very basic, and the, the time from the point we announced it was, I think, in May of 2007, and, we, and in May we said it would launch in September, and so we managed to get it launched on September 30th, I believe. So it was the very last day of September. And at the time we announced it, we had nothing but a sketch. I mean, nothing, I mean, there's nothing cut up. There's no rights. There's no license. There's none of that. So it really all happened in that time frame. And that was that was basically how it began. And we and we were able to launch it pretty successfully because we had a big conference that was willing to promote it for us that had like 10,000 people at it. I think we had 20,000 unique visitors in the first month, you know, to the website. So we felt like it was great considering we had no marketing budget or anything. At least the the, the initial interest was good. So with any MVP, right? You, you, you've already touched on a couple of these, but with any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about, you know, technical debt or feature cut or things like that. You know, you mentioned the licensing for the Bible. That that would be one you had to work through. Tell me about some other ones you had to work through, and how you coped with those decisions. In our particular case, it's like what kind of proves out this concept enough to where people can see enough of it to stay with us as we develop the rest of the vision. If all we had was a Bible reader, that wouldn't have been fundamentally different than what was already being offered online. So we had to have this ability for users to associate content and begin to make it their own, even if it was just a few content types or fairly simple, you know, associations. Things that were cut were groups and community features, and you know things that were kind of obvious additions that should be there, but not required for people to be able to see kind of the more novel concept that we were trying to demonstrate. So that's kind of I think how we parsed out like what made it and what didn't make it. As far as scaling and underlying technology, we were not too worried about that at the time. I'd, I'd love to say we had like big vision and lots of expect expectation that was going to blow up. We really didn't think it was going to be huge. We just wanted to see if it would work, and so that that helped us because we didn't have to build systems and architecture that we were thinking of supporting millions of users. You know, and, and had we tried to do that, it would have been a total disaster just because we wouldn't have had the the resources um, to finish that. We probably would never had it done. It would never got completed if we were trying to build under that that type of pressure. In many ways, I've benefited from not knowing what the future is going to look like, <laughs> because if I did, we would have made probably a lot of bad decisions because we would have tried to shortcut our way to to what we knew was coming. So a little bit of of the whole like blinder to the future, you know, not I mean not being able to see too far ahead, I felt like it's been a benefit because it sort of kept kept me in the present, you know, kind of kept with what we needed to do for today. When we built the app, it kind of had a similar type thing to it. We already had the Bible text licenses, but 
really the app was really that just sort of basic interface to it. And at that point in time, we really didn't know, we had no idea. We, we was a flyer on the app thing. We really didn't know if it would work. We didn't have to get approved. There was no testing capabilities really when you were building apps back then. There, you know, it was your own, we had one device and I mean, it was, you were blind, you know, what you were doing. So the initial process was again, just kind of like, what can we do to make sure that there's an app in the app store when it launches <laughs> that's called Bible, that is a Bible. It was just, it was getting down to kind of almost like a placeholder. You know, can we just get something in there? And that's how it felt on the app side. But it was it was similar on the website. And you know, the deadline did help though by naming when we were going to release it. That was actually a really big help for the website MVP because I don't like to miss deadlines, and so it gave us this artificial constraint that kind of forced you know, really really forced the issue. Um, if we didn't have that, I, I'm pretty confident we would have let it just kind of meander along for months later um, just because you can always keep tweaking and trying to add more um, so the deadline actually really helped so you get the app in the app store and i hear you saying you know it just the goal was to get it there at least to just be a placeholder to start how did you progress the product from there how did you mature it and, and i'm curious you know about how you went about building your roadmap and figuring out, okay, you had the sticky notes, the big sticky notes from before, but even deciding this is the next most important thing to build. How'd you do that? So the interesting thing about the app is, is the day before we submitted it to Apple, which was in June of 2008, uh, we were getting ready to, there's like a deadline or a window. I can't remember if they just like opened up for submissions on a day, but there was, there was a date we planned to send it to them. In the day before I was driving into work and I saw uh, that morning, I'd, I, I saw an article on TechCrunch about a company that were building an analytics library that for, for iPhone apps. So when I got to work that morning, I said, hey, can we, is it possible for us to put this in the code, you know, this analytics library? And the team's like, yeah, it's actually pretty simple to kind of hook it in. So we did that just like at the last minute, like almost like an afterthought. And that proved to be the key, like the catalytic decision that in retrospect was, was huge. We just didn't know it at the time. Because when the App Store launched, Apple had really no data for developers. Like their, their, the App Store interface was so underdeveloped. And you can understand why. I mean, they're just getting the thing started. They didn't really even know, you know where it was going. And so we had no metrics, no, no idea how many people were installing it except for the fact that we had this library that was in there. And so this third party company were giving us all this data in real time of, of what was happening. And it blew our minds because the first three days from like Thursday night to Sunday morning, we saw 83,000 people install the app. At that point in time, like the concept of that was mind blowing. We also didn't know how many apps were going to be in the app store. I mean, I, I didn't know if it was going to be thousands. I didn't know if it was going to be 10. I mean, we had no idea. And there were 200 free apps. And there are a lot more like small paid apps, but, but clearly the market kind of really favored the free app approach at that point. And so we had you know a lot of eyeballs focused on 200 apps. I mean, you, you could almost download every single app in the app store that, that time. Like if you wanted just to go and see what they all did. What we realized was, first of all, we had no idea this, it would be that successful, which quickly caused us to, to put any energy we could. We felt like we had a tiger by the tail, like we really needed to push into the momentum of it. And what Apple did was they launched the App Store in certain countries and languages, and then they had a they had kind of a roadmap of when they were going to launch in other languages in other countries. So it didn't all launch at once. 
like they were going to be in Portuguese in in August or something. And, and you know, just they kind of had it tiered out. What we realized was there was a real first mover advantage to having your app in the store when all those eyeballs are focused in one place. So our roadmap wasn't initially related to language, but it quickly, we pivoted to make that the focus at the beginning, because we said, there's an opportunity right now if we can have the app in Portuguese, and if we can have the app in Spanish, and if we can have the app in these other languages, we can be one of very few apps that are in the app store, because at that point, the chance of having a lot of Portuguese apps is really low. So for the first several months, that was the focus. How do we get a Bible in this language? How do we get the app localized in this language? How do we make sure that it's available for launch at that point in time? The other just urgent thing was because of the, the scale of it, bug fix, bugs became apparent pretty quick. And, um, and like I mentioned earlier, there was no testing ability, that, especially before the app store launched, you just had, you couldn't have multiple devices using you know, the, the app. And so now that the app store was launched, we had multiple devices that could download the production build and we could, we could kind of test different environments to figure out what's going on. And so anyway, so a lot of the initial effort was fixing what was broke and adding languages on the roadmap. As it moved on, it really became listening to what users were telling us, what data was telling us, it became a big driver of the roadmap. We still had the, the pages, the, the big post-it notes, you know, and had our ideas of where we wanted to take people. But it's really easy to listen to user reviews and see what's resonating. We even changed like our vocabulary and what we called features based on how people talked about them. We launched audio Bibles, which is just an audio recording of the Bible text you can listen to, kind of like Audible. We launched it as a feature, but when we saw reviews and we saw people talk about it, they said, I love how the Bible app reads to me. And they didn't call it an audio Bible, they just said it reads to me. And so we just changed, literally changed our marketing vocabulary around what people were saying about it to kind of align it. So, so we do a lot of that, like learning from what users are saying. It's not just totally a user-defined pathway because a lot of times people don't know what they can't see. So we're trying to, to obviously take them in a direction, but many of the steps sometimes are, are kind of informed or prioritized based on where we see momentum. So in the early days of the app stores, so I, you know, my, I wanted to ask like what the apps were built in, you know, if they were built natively or not, but I, don't, I, don't, I suspect there's not any other option besides native in the early days. Is that, is that true? Yep, that was pretty much, yeah, that was pretty much what you had to build in. I'm not a developer, but yeah, we were building it in native code using Xcode and our, all the tools that Apple you know, had. And that also was a problem because I remember one time early on, we had, we had a 19-year-old on our team, by the way, that we found that loved Apple and was a developer. And that was basically the only requirement you had to have back then was to be like 19 and love Apple and be a developer to, to know how to code. Because there's, I mean, there's nobody who wrote mobile apps, you know, there's no like school for it or coding dojo or anything like that, you know, back then. One time though, I remember Apple came out with a new beta version of their software tools, development tools. And he was the type of person that would install the alpha, alpha, super alpha version of everything, right? Like in like the, the second he could get a hold of the build. So he did that and installed it and he began working on the app in the new tool set. And however he did it, there was some digital signature that got removed or that got deleted on accident by the alpha build. And then when we submitted it, we submitted our update to the store, it didn't match up with what the store was looking for. And it got stuck, like stuck to the point where you couldn't back it out. 
then there's no tech support number to call, you know? And so I, I literally had to do a who do I know that knows somebody to get to a VP at Apple to try to get, it took weeks to try to get this unstuck because just, the App Store just wasn't designed to handle errors and handle problems, you know, with it. There was even the suggestion at the time by, by the App Store people via employees via email that we should just go ahead and start a new app and just delete that one, you know? And this is after we had hundreds of thousands of, of devices that have installed it. I was like, absolutely not, you know, there's no way. But that was kind of the environment. It was a little wild, wild west back then. I mean, the tools you had to work with, there was lots of bugs in the underlying, you know, code that were system level type things that you were having to navigate around. And again, I'm not a developer or a coder, but just enough to be able to obviously articulate some of the challenges, you know, and, and that made it interesting, but it also meant that you really had to be pretty dynamic. You had to have people that were willing to learn because there was nobody that could be an expert. Well, you mentioned the 19-year-old that just loves Apple. So, you know, I want to switch to team. How did you build your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? The initial people that we brought on, all of them were really smart and they were learners. And those, those were intentional things, I should say, we, did, we were looking for because of what I just said about how dynamic the environment was. If anybody was an expert, we probably didn't want them. What we really wanted is somebody that was postured around learning because we, we knew that the environment was changing quickly. And in our case, we weren't just developing on Apple because we began to develop on BlackBerry and we also had developed on Android. And at one point we had nine different active platforms that we were developing on because there was Bada and J2ME and all these different, and, you know, Microsoft had their platform. You could kind of guess which platforms you thought might win out, but there was such large investments going into it. They really didn't know globally if it was going to get down to just one or two. So you kind of had to position yourself, you know, to be watching all of them. Because of that, though, I also needed team members that had a high degree of flexibility and kind of could thrive in a bit of chaos. Uh, there's certain people that need a lot of structure and there's other people that want anything but structure. And so our initial team were much more generalist, entrepreneurial, learner type folks that were very comfortable with being kind of tossed into a whole new challenge with shifting priorities and a real dynamic and intense kind of work environment. As time goes on, you realize you really need to have systems in place and you really need to have structure to kind of how you develop. and. And the chaos can work only for a short season, but not forever. That's really a completely different type of person. I mean, in fact, so much so that a lot of those original people, in fact, almost all those original people um, are gone because the environment that you need to, to build it is just not suited well you know, to their personality. And not that you want them to leave, but they, they just they opt out because they're like, okay, this is not how I'm wired. You know, they, they kind of wanted that, that chaos and that new you know, challenge. So it's changed over time, but I would say one that is a continued attribute that we look for though, are really smart people that are postured around learning because I really just don't like the whole expert mentality. I just feel like people get too stuck. And, and even today, it's still too dynamic. I mean, they, you know, the, the operating systems change multiple times a year. And as it changes, you know, you can't be static in the way you think about things. You've got to be willing to embrace new technologies, new tools. And so that's definitely still an attribute. But, but we're definitely less on the, the chaos side today than we used to be, uh, unfortunately, because I'm a little more drawn to that myself. 
so you mentioned this in the in the beginning, how you know you weren't thinking about scale with the first version. When the App Store version started to take off, I'm sure that became something you had to think about. So how did you approach scaling the technology, the team, the, how you approach, um, and how did you fight it as you grew? We've had this kind of tension between efficiency and growth that everybody has, but we've tried to manage that as we've gone. What's unique about us and would feel different if we were structured differently is, one, we're not-for-profit and our revenue source is actually based off of donations and initially not even donations from our user base. It was really just like our church and some outside donors that were really passionate about what we do. What that meant was we don't have access to capital, at least in the way that people traditionally do. Um, if this was a startup, just our growth success would have given us a, a fairly sizable valuation and we could have easily raised a near unlimited amount of capital to build a team. And a little bit of it was also is growing so fast that, and, and the fact that it's not-for-profit, I was probably a little overly emphasizing the expense column in, ter in terms of saying, okay, how do we make sure we build this thing in a way that it doesn't like outgrow our ability to, to sustain it? because there's just obviously ongoing costs. So in that tension between efficiency and growth, in retrospect, I erred too much on efficiency. And, and so we would build things that were really trying to be well-optimized, you know, for scale and well-optimized for growth um, to the point where we spent too much time on it. We would over-engineer some things. It's not that we had time to over-engineer everything, but we would, you know, just really try to be doing things that could drive down costs. We'd spend time on projects that would help us optimize something about our, our data transfer rate. Those kinds of things that if I had a different capital structure and was thinking differently about it, we would have probably just blown right through that, you know, and not really not been as concerned about it. We're changing that today, actually. So it's different today. All of our engineers, especially core, like core service engineers and people that are in the, the center of it would always think that we don't spend enough time on, on thinking through scaling. <laughs> um, so that's always kind of a, a little bit of what the preference would be. And we definitely made some, I mean, we made some technological mistakes along the way, some, some architectural mistakes that cost us, you know, and, and we had to spend months working on, on code that we had to totally toss because it just was a disaster, you know, when we launched it. So there's those seasons, unfortunately, and given our size and our capital structure, we just really couldn't afford to be that wrong um, that much, you know, about, about things. You know, once we started to see it take off, we knew we had to at least scale had to be a, a, a thought process to it. Um, for us because we, we just couldn't sustain it without, without some kind of thought around scaling on the technology side. On the team side, because of the capital constraint, we got creative with how we grew some of our team resources and that we leveraged a lot of volunteers. For example, we, I want to provide tech support for a free app um, and not just like send an email in and five days later, maybe, you know, we'll respond to it. But I like wanted like three hour response time tech support that was better than what you would get if you paid for it. So we, we always wanted the bar to be high on excellence. So if you use our app and our platform, we, we wanted there to be no excuse that, hey, this is free, so that's why this doesn't work or that's why this isn't great or whatever. So today we have about 2,000 volunteers that actively you know are working on the app. And we provide tech support, I think, in 17 languages. We have the app localized in 70 languages, and all of that's human translation by human translation teams that are all volunteer. And so we, we begin to 
scale our team, not just through paid staff members, but through people that were passionate users of the app that will, would contribute their time. And there's obviously an onboarding process and there's systems that have to be developed and there's leadership structure that's in that because we have two or three staff, full-time staff members to 2,000 volunteers, which means we actually have a tiered structure of leadership. We have basically volunteer leaders leading volunteers, you know, it's kind of the way the structure works. There's definitely some, some scaling that we did on the people side that related, that, that that's how we approached it. But you know, there's still this, the, there's still that tension between efficiency and growth. And I feel like we are just now entering a phase where we're really hoping and planning to take off in, in, a, in a fairly significant way in the next few years. Well, as you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built with Uversion, what are you most proud of? The thing I'm most proud of is that I've been married 26 years. Congratulations. Have a great Absolutely. marriage and, and four, four kids because um, unfortunately there's, you know, some body counts out there from people that haven't done as well you know, on that. So that's probably the thing I'm most proud of, quite honestly. As far as the product and what we do is concerned, you know, we recently celebrated a milestone of half a billion installs, you know, of the app. And what we know, because we hear the stories, is those millions of people that use the Bible app, it's a life-transforming thing. Some people literally are here today because of the app. They, they were going to take their life and they looked in the app store for any kind of answer, any kind of hope that they could find. And the Bible app and our app provided that, you know, for them. You know, it's a life-changing product. And not because the product itself is life-changing, but really because the content that we're, we're helping people connect with is life-changing. And we just make it easy for them to do that. So it's hard not to look at and say, okay, really the, the, just the, the sheer impact of what that means for millions of people that are engaging in it is obviously something to be proud of. Um, and we're, proud, we're certainly humbled to be a part of it. And I also feel like we built a great culture, you know, on our team. And I'm proud of that too, because there's a lot of unhealthy cultures out there and it's not perfect. And we've definitely had seasons where it's been worse than maybe some times where it's been better. But overall, people love working and being a part of our team and they love what they get to do. It's a humbling thing because, you know, if, if there's a lot of responsibility, it feels like that comes with it because there's a lot of people counting on us to be there and to help them. So we try to kind of keep that in balance. You know, the, the phrase we use internally or I've used internally is we don't take it lightly and we don't hold it tightly, meaning it's significant. And we, and we carry a weight and a responsibility to, to kind of steward it well and to be our language for it. Um, but we also don't even view it as ours, which is a little different than like typical entrepreneurial mindsets, you know, and that we don't have an ownership mindset to it. We view this as something that God's done that's kind of bigger than us. And we're kind of more stewards than owners, you know, like we just have kind of the responsibility to do well with it. And that frames it in this kind of humble yet responsible sort of way. And that's sort of when I think about like what's happened, that's sort of my posture towards it. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I could pick a number of them. I've already told you about the very first idea was a failure. And so we responded by learning about why it failed and that led us to mobile. When we added social features to the app and allowed you to connect friends, we as a, the team, we made a, an architectural decision about the t underlying technology we would use to kind of basically it's a graph database that they were going to leverage to build that that architecture and you know they researched it it wasn't like we rushed the decision we had lots of time to process what they were going to use 
As we got into it, we started to see problems with the technology, but we were so deep into it that we just kept pushing in to get the thing launched. And it was, of course, greatly delayed getting launched. And then when it launched, it was just a disaster, you know, in terms of uh, ability to handle the scale. We started throwing caching layers in front of it, trying to do what we could to help mitigate some of the, the, the challenge. And we ended up scrapping and rewriting the entire thing and scrapping the whole concept. And I look back at it, what we, what we, what we did about it was we fixed it <laughs> and, and went through having to, to do that. But the, the, the problem we had was we, we kind of knew, we knew that there were challenges and we kept pressing into the wrong decision instead of cutting loose of it sooner. We could have saved months and months of time, but it's hard because that would have meant extending even further the deadline, you know, that we had already blown by. It's hard to kind of completely start over, you know, when you're down a path in the middle of something. Some, sometimes you're like, I just want to prove it out. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work better than we think, you know, kind of thing. But it came at a cost. I mean, it came at a cost to momentum, came at, you know, came at a cost to growth for sure. And team morale, you know, was, was really down, you know, at that time, just because of, of that, it's such, such a focus. And one other quick mistake, there's lots of them. We created an app called Bible Lens, a separate app that was a concept of taking computer vision and taking any photo um, that you have on your camera or I mean, you could take a live picture or whatever. And like if I, I've got a cup sitting next to me on my table here, but if I took a picture of this, it would actually look at what objects are in the picture. And then it would pick the most relevant Bible verses for that picture and then it would render them so you could create a verse image, you know, that you could share on social media. And people loved it and had high reviews. We had, I don't know, a million installs, you know, of the app. But it became apparent over time that even though people loved it and it was novel and they liked to use it, it, was, it wouldn't get kind of regular use because it just wasn't the type of app that they would remember, you know, or go to. And everybody wanted the feature to be a part of the Bible app. But the long and short of it is we shut it down, you know, after about a year, year and a half of doing it. And I mean, it was a lot of time, a lot of money into it. There's some other reasons why we needed to shut it down. But that's never an easy thing, right, when you've invested a bunch of time and and even your your brand associated with it. Because, you know, we go out there and launch it and it's like, oh, this is a new thing. And lots of people go check it out. And then, you know, a year later, you're like, yeah, we're, we're closing the door on it. So it's like a very public mistake. It's not like an internal architecture mistake. It's a it's one that's out there. I, I've always felt like you just got to be really willing to fail. Part of being willing to fail is not just taking the risk to start something, you know, but it's actually acknowledging that it failed and being willing to stop something. That's usually where the fear of failure really comes in for most people. It's like being willing to stop something. Otherwise, you don't really face it. You just kind of keep going and pretending like it's not failing. So what does the future look like for version as the product and for the team? You know, today we have 150 million registered users, roughly round number. On the growth side, in terms of installs and all that, we're actually kind of flat, you know, year over year. I mean, meaning we're still getting a lot of new installs, but we haven't really, the velocity of growth is not where it should be or where it used to be. And so we're making a lot of changes, but what we're trying to do as far as the future of the product is we're saying, look, we've got people coming from all kinds of different places to download our app. They come from every country and every territory in the world. I mean, we have people use the app literally everywhere, you know, on earth. They speak different languages. And as you heard earlier, we have the app localized in 70 languages. We actually have the Bible in over 1800 languages. And so they're coming from all these different perspectives. 
and they also have all these different felt needs. Like there's some motivation as to why they download the Bible app. Some people are dealing with anxiety, depression. Obviously, coming through a pandemic, there's a lot of lot of dynamics that are at play. What people are feeling and going through. So they're turning to the Bible because they're looking for answers, you know, for something. It could be relationship struggles that they have. What we're wanting to do is is build the app in, in such a way that we can understand all those things about where someone's coming from, and we can create a personalized content experience, even on their first run, you know, of the app that really helps connect them to truth and to content that's really going to be helpful for their particular circumstance, in their particular geography, in their particular language. Um, and then put that on a personalized journey, so that they're then not just consuming content, binge watching or listening or reading in one night or one day, but we put them on a daily journey. We've got various habit formation tools already built into the app. We would kind of we're planning to expand those significantly. And as we do that, we help people understand that they're not alone on this journey. That there's actually millions of people just like them. And that we don't want them not to just want them not to just know that they're not alone, but we also want them to be connected to people that also could help them, you know, on the journey. So much stronger connection to community and to church. But we also people may not realize our B two B platform, and that we actually enable ministries and churches to essentially accomplish their mission on our platform end to end. And so we we plan to just really build that out even further to where you could start a new ministry. And use our platform, and it can fulfill basically all the aspects of what you need to do, you know, in that ministry, as a free platform to do it. So it's really kind of a B two B platform as well in terms of how it's how it's designed. As far as the team goes, we have about 115 FTE plus the volunteers, you know, that I mentioned that work on Uversion. I, I see that growing to about 400 in the next four years, and so pretty decent rate of growth, you know, for us. So we're on a, a pretty good growth curve ahead. As far as、uh, team and product, well, Bobby, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work, that you create? You know, name a person you look up to, or many, and why. One is my pastor, Craig Rochelle. He's just an incredible leader. In fact, he has a leadership podcast that's really popular, and and he is not just a pastor, but just like one of these kind of world class leaders that leads through delegating authority, not just responsibility. And、so that's kind of one of his unique attributes. Really, kind of has, empowers the people around him to lead the way that they are best equipped to lead, and not just kind of like what he wants, you know, kind of approach. And so that's been inspiring and learned from him. I mentioned I was a lifetime learner, and、uh, many, many years ago, back when I was still in tech, as an entrepreneur in technology space, I got asked to go visit a,、um, a heart doctor who had just retired. He was a cardiologist. His、name was Dr. Galen Robbins. He wanted to, to meet me because he wanted he had some technology ideas. He'd always been interested in technology, and I, I think he was probably 75 years old. I really don't know what age he was, but he was about that that age. He had just retired. Went to his house. He had this really nice house and this really nice golf community neighborhood. And when I went there, he was sitting at the kitchen table, and he said, "Hey, sorry, I just got back from Dallas. My wife and I have been staying down there、uh, for the last few months in an apartment." And so I just, well, I'm curious, you know, Dr. Robbins, what brought you? What were you down in Dallas for? He's like, well, I wanted to learn this laser heart procedure that I've always wanted to learn, and so we we got an apartment and I went down there and I learned this procedure, and I was just kind of looking at him confused. I said, Dr. Robbins, I thought that you retired, you know, recently. He's like, well, yeah, I, I retired, you know, four or five months ago, but but I just wanted to learn this procedure. And I said, "Well, are you going to use it?" And he's like, "Oh no, no, I'll never use the procedure. I'm not not practicing anymore. I just wanted to learn it." 
what I realized was here's somebody that's 75 years old. The first thing he does when he retires is leaves his really nice house on the golf course to go move to Dallas in an apartment for three months to learn a procedure that he'll never use. And I thought, when I get older, I want to be just like Galen Robbins. Okay, so we talked about you know mistakes earlier, but a little bit different spin, Bobby. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? When I look back at the past, I think probably the, the thing I would do differently is I, I would, on the tension between efficiency and growth, you know, I, I really feel like we should have been a little bit more all in on the growth side, you know, and not quite so tethered to the efficiency. But in honesty, when I look in retrospect and I realize I'm kind of one of those guys, when you look back in history, you think, okay, if I had a time machine, I went back in time. I don't like want to mess up the timeline by by altering something significant. I feel like my mistakes actually shaped my path in a way that was really helpful. And I wouldn't really want to undo my mistakes because I think that's how I learned and that's how I grew and that's how I developed. So I'm kind of not the not the type of person that like wants to go back and say, but I w- really wish I could avoid that mistake. Now, I, but I also haven't had the kind of mistakes that like cost someone their life or where I made that kind of horrible decision. So we're talking about more like I made a product decision mistake or I made, you know, we, we learned by doing the wrong thing. Now I grew from it. Those kinds of mistakes I feel like are just life shaping in a positive way and, and not the type of thing that I want to try to go back and avoid. So you're getting on a plane, you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road multiple times? Assuming that, uh, it's not just their opinion that's the next big thing and that it actually is the next big thing. My advice to them is probably just to really make sure they know who they are and they know why they do what they do. Because success will pull you in a hundred different directions. Many of them will seem like good directions, but they'll pull you off center of, of who you are and the purpose behind, you know, why you created what you created. And I think having that, that kind of rudder to life is a difficult thing to have, but if you can be really grounded in that and really understand that, I think many of the really successful entrepreneurs have, been, have managed to do that well. And many of the people that have been taken out, you know, are ones that kind of lost track of that you know, along the way. And, um, and so if I just had one piece of advice, that's probably what it'd be, it would be to really make sure you know who you are, really make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. That's fantastic advice. Well, Bobby, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of version. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Coat Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion.
Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money. 